Last One to the Party, the podcast where we check in with someone who's checking out a classic film, long-running TV show, or legendary performer for the very first time. Welcome to this episode of Last One to the Party. I find myself unprepared for this week. We did not have a guest lined up. It's a busy time of the year for us. Uh, For us here in the Eason household, we roll straight from a wedding anniversary into my birthday, then the kid's birthday. Fun fact, both boys born on November 13th, exactly four years apart. So we roll straight from that into then Thanksgiving, and then Christmas, and New Year's, and so this is the beginning of not thinking about anything but presents for two young boys, and how to survive, <laughs> how to survive it, how to, how to make it through. So I, I think that combined with COVID, combined with uh, going back to work physically in the location of my employment, I've, I've let the ball drop. I have a couple of feelers out, and I'm hoping that people take me up on ideas and offers. So I find myself shorthanded without a guest. And uh, last week we had our email episode, and this week it's just me. And um, I don't know if this is official last one of the party, but I, I was thinking I could uh, talk a little bit about the UCB theater and improv in general. And just before COVID, there was a lot happening at the UCB theater that was not good. I I won't I won't dive into that the problems that were long long lasting problems, long running problems at the theater that have come to light as this crop of 25-year-olds experiences improv through the prism of life in the 2000 early 2020s, late 2010s versus getting there in 96, 98, somewhere in there. So uh, all of those things aside and all of those things being observable and true while I was there, um, I will just say I discovered the UCB theater kind of in a fugue state almost. I don't really, it's one of those things where you don't really remember all of the details, but a couple of things kind of conspired at the same time. One of them was I had gotten hired to, I had been working at ABC News in the radio division, and then I moved over to entertainment online, and uh, then over to sports, ABC Sports Online, their beta version of the Monday Night Football website. And we got to go and cover football games in person. It was great, had an all-access pass, got to interview players in the locker room, got to be on the field for games, fantastic. When I interviewed for the job, I told them, if you are looking for someone to cover ice skating at the end of the season, I am not your guy. Don't hire me. I literally said, don't hire me. If you're looking for someone to cover gymnastics and ice skating, don't hire me. I'm interested in and I know about football. I know the typical amount, average amount that people know about basketball and baseball. If you want me to work on any of those, great I don't know anything about any of these other sports. Don't hire me. So they said, great, that fits. We're going to work on, you know, getting prepped for the next season during the off season. So it's not going to be an issue. Well, Super Bowl comes and goes and they're like, hey, we want you to work on 
ice skating and horse racing. This was back in the days when AOL was formidable. So uh, we had a partnership with AOL, and I had to work on this plain text coding for this website partnership that we had, and it was miserable, and I did not enjoy it, and the people there were the worst kind of pseudo-jocks, and I just, you know, I'd had enough. And so I quit that job, and I, you know, much later realized, oh, I should have gone to HR and said, hey, find me a better fit, <laughs> you giant corporation, you. <laughs> well, what do you know? Well, what do you know when you're that young? So I quit that job, and I found myself kind of at loose ends. And I recall seeing an article in, maybe it was the New York Press, or maybe it was a one-page in New Yorker, or... or New York Magazine, rather, showing the four UCB promo picture of them in front of a chain link fence and one of them climbing up over it or starting to climb over it. And I read about it and I thought, what is this? I'm, this is really interesting. Also ringing in my head was the advice of my uncle who, who found it strange that I was pursuing music playing saxophone when I was such a verbal, talkative, funny person. He said, you're doing a thing that takes that completely off the table. And I thought, well... Maybe. I mean, I don't know. But it was sort of percolating. So I tracked down the information and I go see them at Solo Arts. Now, here's where I'm an outlier for most folks who did UCB at that time, who came to the UCB theater somewhere between 96 and, say, 2006, maybe as late as 2010. I don't know. But certainly within that 10, first 10-year 10 framework. Most people went and saw ASCAT and saw all of these experienced improvisers and their up-and-coming celebrity friends being hilarious. And I didn't see that. I saw Harold Knight. And so I saw their students. <laughs> and maybe that was what gave me the courage to think, like, oh, I want to do this. Because I saw people who were doing it well, but not necessarily at a high level um, or a higher level, to be fair. But I just would go back every week. And I was in a relationship that was dwindling. And I would go do this thing, and she had no interest in it. And I would find myself getting more and more drawn into this world. And there was a moment when the Swarm, who was clearly the strongest of the student groups, they did a, a Herald completely in the dark that Harold night before Halloween. I cannot remember. Harold night, I think, was on Tuesday nights then. It doesn't matter. But it was a Harold night closest to Halloween, and they did it in the dark, and it was terrifically hilarious. And I have, you know, among my nerdy pursuits and predilections is one for kind of radio comedy, comedy albums, and in particular the Firesign Theater. I've really enjoyed their stuff. And this, to me, evoked that, where it was in the dark and it was stories were told and scenes were evoked solely by what people were saying and how they were relating to each other verbally. You couldn't see anything else. And so I was really just wowed by that. I was so kind of blown away by that. I walked an extra two subway stations away before I got on the train because I just had to think about it. And then, and I was going to these shows every week every week and I didn't know how these people got up on stage and then I would notice I would recognize some people um, appearing in Conan O'Brien sketches and then I realized they had a sketch show on Comedy Central the Upright, the Upright Citizens Brigade had a sketch show I thought wow I want to do that that sounds that looks really exciting how did you get 
involved in this. I don't know. And then finally, after three or four weeks, five, six weeks, whatever it was, of going to see their Herald Knights, Armando Diaz, who was hosting Herald Knights, announced that they taught classes. And I mean, I signed up. I sent them money. Boom. Signed up for level one. And I was in. And I had a good class, good group of people who, a lot of whom I'm still friends with and stay in touch with and, you know, not every day, not every week, but, you know, we stay in touch. And it was really great, and I was hooked, and I was in. And then, obviously, level two, level three, on and on and on. I was fortunate that I got to the UCB in 98, and it was not as well-known and as popular. It was very much a small little clubhouse. And so the majority of people in my level three class got put on Herald teams. And the majority of those people stayed on Herald teams for two years. So I was really lucky. And also in level three, you got part of the level three curriculum was to perform every other week. So it was really good, you know, training. And so I really enjoyed it. And I got I got asked to do or, or they, they made it known that they needed people to play extra parts in the Upright Citizens Brigade Comedy Central show. And I did that. I played guards in the background. I played a cop guard and I played a prison guard. Um, long days, long, boring days when you're just the extra standing around. But it was fun. It was fun. It was like, oh, this is cool. I get to be on TV. And one of my first recollections is going to the rap party at the China Club for that season that I was on. I got an invite because I was in it. And I saw people that I recognized from the theater who, a couple of whom had had retaken, people would retake old classes because they would only offer four levels and you'd go back and you'd take Ian's level three class because you hadn't had Ian for a while or whatever, you know, you'd do that sort of thing. So there was some old vets who'd been there for a year already uh, who were in my level three class. And I saw them at the rap party. And I was, you know, I was also a little bit older than everybody else who starts doing improv. Everybody else there was, you know, somewhere in the range of 23 to 26, maybe. And I was already 32. And when you're that much, when you're when you're in your 30s, you stop buying into this bullshit about what your image is or, I, you know, that whole thing. You, that starts to slough off around then. And so I went up and I said, hi. I was like, hey, this is great. This is great, blah, blah, blah. And they just, like something out of a bad Disney tween sitcom, they just cold-shouldered me. And I was like, fuck these people. I don't need this bullshit. And, you know, I make the joke that there was a relationship that I got into when I first moved to New York back in 91. And we should have broken up after three months, but instead we stayed together for eight or nine years. Uh, which is a whole other <laughs> dissertation. But I feel like I did kind of the same thing with the UCB. But to to a benefit. I met my wife at the UCB, and we have two kids that are the best thing in the world. So, you know, it's all good. But that was an early impression that, oh, these people suck. And I don't know, maybe they were just not socially graceful. Uh, you know, I can make excuses for them, I suppose. But that was an early memory. And then in... August of 99, I got put on a Herald team mother with a bunch of really, really great improvisers. And we stayed together for almost 10 years, eight years, whatever it was, and did a bunch of shows. And the the thing that was so appealing about it in those early, early years was that it was 
this tiny little almost secretive club. And I, I grant you that in the context of all the problems that they've had, yes, it was largely male and largely white, and that is a problem. And the reasons why it was both of those things was a systematic problem from the beginning, and those problems were in existence in Chicago, and they brought them with them to New York, and I grant you all of that. But the feeling of it was great. And when people compare it to punk rock, I, I presume that the feeling of being in a band that played at CBGB's regularly or Max's Kansas City regularly, any of those places, in the mid-70s, that feeling must have been very similar of there's just a small coterie of us who all believe in the same thing and want to push the art form. And so it was really, really exciting to be in that little click of people, you know? And it was, it was fraught with its weird, you know, moments where we would have a theater meeting every six months and Matt Besser would yell at us to fly her more for all of our shows. And he wasn't wrong. We needed to promote our shows more, but it was like, okay, here we go. We're doing this again. And this was when the, the, the entire theater community could fit into the theater. This was a small group of people. So it was really, really interesting to be a part of that. And there was a lot of fun off the wall stuff. And you had permission to be bad. You had permission to really take the leap and maybe hit something good or interesting. And so all of that was really, really appealing. And then they got their own theater on 22nd Street. And that that and I guess I'm kind of jumping around here, but that was when it was really just this little clubhouse when they were on 22nd Street. We had our own space and all of this. And I always felt like when they moved to Gristides, it didn't feel like as much fun as the 22nd Street Theater did. And that probably makes me an old stick in the mud and old fogey because I think the people who'd been around about as long as I have just adore that basement space because that's where all of their memories happened. But to me, it was a weird proscenium stage with stuff dripping from the pipes from the McDonald's and the Gristides above. It was disgusting. It was not great. But having said all of that, the work was really, really fun. And it led to being in the pipeline to do Conan bits. And I got to do a Conan bit where I got to sit on the couch next to Conan and pretend to be a former co-host. So all of that was really exciting. And then while they were still at 22nd Street, the Herald Knights started to change a little bit. They stopped just simply hosting the show. You know, here's our next group, boom. Here's the next group, take a break. And, you know, the first two groups are sort of one first half, take a break, intermission, whatever. And people started doing bits and stand-up comedy. And to me, that was just a violation of the art form. To me, I'm, I'm that, you know, that jazz snob who believes in art and they were not adhering to the art and they were going towards commerce and doing all of these things to draw crowds, whatever. And it all makes sense. You got to get people in the seats and sell tickets. So I'm the wrong person to, to go to for that. But, um, yeah, all of this to say that it was an interesting time to be there. And, and yes, it got to be fraught with difficulties. Anytime you're working with seven or eight other people week in, week out at a certain point, things don't jibe and they don't mesh as well, at least not for me. And possibly to their credit, they were more forward looking in terms of what's next. This is not the only thing, but I loved the improv side of it so much that I didn't want to know what was next. I wanted to just do this. And so to me, there was always that frustration. I'm like, why can't we just commit to doing this show? Why are you missing this show? Why won't you focus during this rehearsal? All of that stuff. 
And that probably may be in the pain of the ass of the group. I don't know. And then certainly, you know, there was different personalities that would pop up and things that would happen. And, you know, you'd have these run-ins with people and it was just, you know, what is the point of, (laughs) what is the point of this, of you having an ego over this thing? So I don't know if this explains, if this fulfills the questions that younger improvisers have about the old days. I also feel like that maybe has passed a little bit. Um, When we first got to L.A., people were curious about like, oh, what was it like when it first started? And now I think, again, the people who were (laughs) born when I started doing it and are now doing it themselves, they don't really care. You know, they're not really that interested. It's not that interesting to them. They're more frustrated by the inherent roadblocks that are up or the inherent inequities that are in the system and and again they were they were there we were just you know blissfully oblivious to it all but it was 10 years spent pursuing a really interesting art form and I got to go to Chicago our group was awarded something for the Chicago Improv Fest best improv group of that year whatever it was we played in a theater that sat almost a thousand people which was really interesting to have to project your voice and really wait an extra beat for the laugh to come bouncing back that was really cool and really interesting and really fun and we did um the chicago improv fest i think the next year or two years later and not everybody could make it out at the same time. And just three of us did the cage match show and we won. We beat a Chicago group in Chicago. That was really fun. That was really crazy. And we we bonded for a long time. We bonded as really good friends too. We spent a lot of time together and, and I certainly, you know, gravitated towards a, a few people in the in my group much more than some others. And those are lasting friendships. And so that's all valuable. And of course, you know, I met my wife. We both happened to be at the same three-on-three competition that they did during Thanksgiving weekend. So if you didn't go anywhere for Thanksgiving, you could just either enter or just simply watch this tournament, which the prize money was something. It was really funny. The prize money was something like $20, something that was not divisible by three, a little extra meta joke. And we were sitting next to each other, and I made some joke, and then she kind of nudged me later on and like heightened the joke, and I was like, oh, I like her. And you know, we started going out. And now we've been married for 12 years and have two kids. So that little social gathering called the UCB was pretty good. The other memory that I have that's pretty strong, if not accurate, is when we started doing cage match at that UCB theater. That cage match was the thing that Kevin Mullaney had done in Chicago and he brought it to New York. And boy, it brought out the competitive nature in people like crazy. The first, the very first cage match was the Swarm versus Cowbot, which were largely regarded as the two most polished teams in the theater, and the Swarm won. And the next week, it was the Swarm against Neutrino. Neutrino was a very ragtag group, and my wife was on that group. And I'm friends with maybe more people on that group than on my own group. (laughs) But they were rough, and they won which nobody expected. And they won because they stacked the house and got all their friends to vote for them, which is what you are supposed to do. But people were outraged because the hierarchy, the natural order of things had been overthrown. 
And that kind of continued on for a couple of years where anytime Neutrino was in cage match, they would do something really fun, interesting, provocative, and they would win and people would be mad because their improv wasn't as strong as this group or that group. But they won because they did something cool and they stacked the house. And so you just had to take it. But it was really interesting to see people get competitive, see these improv theater nerds get their competitive juices flowing over this cage match and not really know quite how to focus it. Uh, So that was kind of curious. And there's some interesting stories about people kind of losing their temper over cage match losses, which I think if you were to bring that up, they would be mortified by their behavior. But it was kind of interesting. And then the other show that I did was Cartoon Chaos, which was a disaster. But I had fun doing it because I was with all my friends and we all hung out after went to the bar and stayed out way too late. It was New York. You could stay at McManus until 4 a.m. And uh, I had the unenviable task of playing Mojo, the robot android, I guess. Mogo? Mogo, not Mojo. Mogo, the android Mogo. And so I had to put on orange makeup and wear an orange jumpsuit every week on Saturdays at midnight and do pretty bad improv (laughs) to an audience of about five people. Uh, the shining moment was after doing that show for months and months and months and months, I was at the movie theater that was on 23rd street and seventh. That's right near the theater, just around the corner from the theater. And it was an afternoon show. And I went to see some movie. I don't remember what it was. And before, and I was just sitting there with my, you know, messenger bag and just maybe listening to my Walkman. I don't know what it was, but I was sitting there just killing time before the movie started. And somebody behind me tapped me on the shoulder <laughs> And said, aren't you in Cartoon Chaos? And I said, yeah. And they go, you're Mogo, right? And I was like, yeah, that's the thing I do. And I was like, how did you recognize me? (laughs) Why? Why would you recognize me? Uh, Yeah, so that that was both great and terrible all at the same time. And the other forgotten piece of the UCB in that time period was there was a a commercial audition class uh, that everybody, everybody took. And that class, I think, was as responsible, maybe, for a lot of people's traction and inevitable success in TV and movies and whatnot as the UCB classes. UCB classes gave you that skill set, but that class, that commercial acting class, put you in the pipeline. People booked a lot of good commercials, and it was in large part because of that Brooke and Mary, Brooke and Mary auditioning class. So they should get some more credit than they deserve. All of this rambling is to just fill the time slot. So I, if you've stuck through this and thought, geez, what is happening? We will be back with actual people who are late to the party on some notable classic film, TV show, or music thing. Uh, But I just thought I got to get an episode up. So I'm doing this late at night, later than it should be, uh, because we needed to get something up. And that's it. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Last One to the Party. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that we'll be back to regular form next week. We'll see. Thank you for continuing to listen. (laughs) And join us next time. If you'd like to follow Jessica online, you can find her on Instagram at Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. 
and Elena is E-L-A-I-N-A, Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. You can follow me on Instagram at James underscore Eason underscore music. The show is produced and edited by me, James Eason, and the theme music is composed by me, James Eason. Thank you.